open to our scripture passage today, and uh, we're looking at Exodus 34, 1 to 35. Exodus 34, 1 to 35. So beginning in verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. And I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord page there. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed down at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Do not make any idols. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days eat bread made without yeast as I commanded you. Do this at the appropriate time in the month of Aviv. For in that month you came out of Egypt. The first offspring of every womb belongs to me, including all the firstborn males of your livestock, whether from herd or flock. Redeem the firstborn donkey with a lamb, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem all your firstborn sons. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest, even during the plowing season and harvest you must rest. Celebrate the festival of weeks with the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the festival of ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year, all your men are to appear before the sovereign Lord, the God of Israel. I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your territory, and no one will covet your land when you go up three times a year to appear before the Lord, your God. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast. And do not let any of the sacrifice for the Passover festival remain until morning. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him when on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with them, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. And then Moses put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak uh, to us today. Lord, we look at these words, some of which are very foreign to us, very strange even, and maybe even hard to believe. And yet we trust this is just as much your word. And Father, we pray that you would take that word and apply it into our hearts. Lord, our hearts are an open book before you. You know the things we've struggled with this week. You know the doubts that we bring. You know the burdens we carry. You know our fears, our anxieties. And we pray, Lord, through the power of your word, would you speak to each of us to build us up and make us look more like Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've almost uh, lived here for nine years now, and I'm thankful that I still haven't tired uh, of the beauty of this valley. The sunsets over the Ochre Mountains are just as beautiful as when we first got here. Uh, When I drive in from our house to the church here, the size of Twin Peaks and Lone Peak are just as massive as when we first arrived. Probably one of my favorite things of living here in this valley is the beauty of the clouds that wrap the mountains after a storm. And you all have seen that, where the sun makes these clouds light up like a lantern, and then there's rays of sun that poke through them like spotlights on the ground. And then those bright clouds are contrasted with these dark, rocky crags that protrude up above the clouds. It's absolutely Beautiful. And, and I love my drive to church on Sunday mornings, particularly in the winter, because I often, as I'm driving uh, east on 102nd, get to watch the first rays of sun poke over the Wasatch Range. And then as I turn north on 48th West, I'm treated to the sun lighting up those orange ochre mountains with this brilliant blue background for the sky. And as I drive to worship, I'm greeted, greeted by creation that has already started worshiping. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a Buddhist or an atheist. When you see the beauty of creation, it leads you to worship. It leads to awe. And and why is creation so beautiful? Why does it move our soul? Well, Psalm 19 tells us, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship, that creation is beautiful because it is a reflection of God's beauty. Creation is like a polished mirror that as God shines down on this earth, creation reflects that glorious image or picture of God. And how does it do this? Well, it is simply through its obedience to God's command. When God spoke the words of 
creation, the son obeyed and became the son. The son didn't stop one day and decide, I want to be a bird instead, but the son is doing what God has called it to do, to be the son. And when creation follows God's command, it becomes that polished mirror that is reflecting God's glory, and that glory gets blasted across our entire universe. And God's plan isn't just for creation to proclaim his glory, but it is for you, for me, for us, his people too as well. That God has designed us to be conduits of his magnificent beauty, to shine like stars in the world. Do you want to shine with the radiance of the morning sun? Do you want your life to reflect the beauty of a perfect sunset? Well, it happens through living as God has created us to live, through obedience to God's command for us, his word. That is what this passage with all these details is ultimately about, what obedience looks like. And the people see it in the face of Moses. He gets what all the cosmetic companies are trying to get, a beautiful glow, and he gets it naturally. This passage shows us what beauty looks like, what obedience looks like, and it's glorious. And it's what God is calling every one of his people to. And that's what I want you to remember this morning. Obedience is actually beautiful. Obedience is beautiful. We'll look at it three ways. First, God's presence, then obedience, and then beauty. So first, God's presence. We've, the dust has settled from all the craziness of the past few days, which we've been looking at over the past few weeks. A crisis has been averted where there's about to be this divorce between God's and his people. It's been repaired, and now it is time to continue on the journey through the desert to their new home. But they're going to need a new copy of the Ten Commandments, because if you remember, Moses threw the original ones down on the ground, shattering them. So God tells Moses, all right, Moses, chisel out two new tablets of stone. And notice how God reminds Moses in verse 1, they're the ones you broke. <laughs> it, it almost is like God is a little bit uh, angry or displeased with Moses for doing that. God provided the first tablets, and now the second tablets, because Moses broke the first ones, Moses has to actually pony up to make the second ones on his own. Then Moses has to lug these stones up the mountain, where God will again write on them. And I want to draw your attention to verse 3. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere near the mountain. Not even the flocks or the herds may graze in front of the mountain. And we've seen instructions like this a number of times in the previous passages, so it's kind of easy to, to jump over it. But that little detail about how the mountain is separate from everything else is central to understanding the rest of this passage. It is what all these other laws are about. Because God has a plan to live with his people that one day all of his people will get access to what Moses has here, the ability to speak with God face-to-face -face like a friend. Now, the problem, though, is that God is holy and the people are sinful. Now, we hear this language so much, we kind of get dull to its significance. So maybe think of it this way. If you remember back in high school chemistry, you probably did some experiment where you took strips of lithium or some other alkali metal, and you put them in water. Anyone remember what happens when you do this? The unstable metal reacts with the water, 
and it fizzes and bubbles, in some cases could even explode. And in a similar way, sin is like this unstable element that reacts violently when it comes into contact with God's holiness. And just like wearing a bathing suit made out of lithium fibers would be a really bad idea, it is also a bad idea to come into contact with God's holiness when you have traces of sin on you. And that is one of the central problems that Scripture is trying to solve, to answer. God longs to live with his people, but as long as there's this thing called sin that is like this invasive species, and that element is found in humanity, it makes it impossible for God to get near his people without a violent chemical reaction. But God is determined to solve this problem, to cure the people of this sin, so that they can dwell together in harmony. And so that's why after the people screw up big time, God reminds Moses of who he is. I am the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love of thousands, and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. God is patient. He's loving. He won't abandon his people because they've screwed up even if they screw up in a really big way. Now we can get tripped up with the next part where it says, but he also punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And we wonder if this doesn't seem fair. And we need to remember that we need to understand any scripture in light of the rest of scripture. So take Ezekiel 18.20. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share in the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share in the guilt of the child. So how do we make sense of these kind of two seemingly contradictory passages? Well, I like the way the New Living Translation gets at Jeremiah's prayer in Jeremiah 32, 18, where he is reflecting on our passage here. He writes, You, God, show unfailing love to thousands, but you also bring the consequences of one generation's sin upon the next. And I think that gets at what this is about. Every single one of us, to one degree or another, we live with the consequences of our parents' sins. Some of you, there are incredible burdens, and every day you're reminded of the consequences of how your parents might have screwed up. And sin runs downhill. And even things like a predisposition to alcohol or other addictions... Because of the way that sin even affects our DNA, you will live under the shadow of your parents' sin. And some of the struggles that you will have are because your parents had those struggles and it got passed down. And if you have kids, you worry about how those sins might even affect your kids. And you worry about them being manifested as they grow older. And yet, notice how God's grace outlasts is bigger than the sin. Sin might run downhill for a few generations, but God's love, he says, is for thousands. And the way we deal with the family history of sin that weighs down on your soul is to bring that sin to God and lay it at the cross and let him break that pattern. He's the only one who can do it. And because he can break that pattern of sin, it's why his plan is to create a new community where you don't have to always put yellow caution tape around the base of the mountains, they don't get any closer, but where he can open the gates to his home and have all of his people come and live with him 
forever. And how does that happen? This brings us to our second point, obedience. God then gives his plan for creating that home where he can live. Verse 10, I am making a covenant with you. Verse 11, obey what I command you today. And then we get like the Cliff Notes version of all the laws that God gave back in Exodus 20 to 23. And, and see how this fits in. God here is giving his blueprints for this beautiful community, one that isn't controlled by sin, where God's home can be in the town square, where everyone can come and fellowship with him, instead of it having to be taped off on the outskirts of the camp. That is what all of these laws are about, removing those elements that react with God's holiness. And that is why, if you notice all these laws, one of the things that is kind of strings them all together, it's this idea of being separate. That if the world is affected by sin, the only way to create a different and beautiful community is to create one that is actually kind of quarantined off from the rest of society so that it, it won't keep getting reinfected by sin. It, that it can be then a showcase of what life looks like in harmony with God, where there isn't that virus running through it. Now, many, many people have gone to create communes or other such societies, that, whether religious ones or not, that are about walling everybody off. We are going to create a utopia here. And usually, it never ends well. It'll become you know, a Netflix documentary at some point. But that doesn't mean we should reject that idea of being separate. Maybe a helpful way to think about it is on the westernmost tip of Oahu in Hawaii is Kaina Point. And it's one of the few remaining undisturbed areas of natural beach on Hawaii. And about 10 years ago, they built this large fence from basically ocean tip to ocean tip, sectioning off that part of the island from all the feral cats and other invasive predators that you know, run rampant through much of the rest of the island. And I took a backpacking trip out there back in 2007 before they built the fence, and it was pretty. But then in 2019, when Lisa and I went back for a trip to Hawaii, we hiked out to the point, and I was amazed by how much the ecosystem had flourished because they had added this fence that sectioned it off from the rest of the island. There are these beautiful white mounds and sand dunes that kind of go along that blue coastline. And now all of those sand dunes were enrobed in all kinds of local and native plants, Oahu river hemp and sandalwood and Hawaiian cotton and all these flowers and shrubs. But one of the biggest changes when we walked out there was an explosion of birds and other animals, like Laysan albatross that found safe nesting grounds on the point. It was just overflowing with life. And why? Because that fence that they built protected it from the invasive species and other predators that were throughout much of the rest of the island of Oahu. And see, that is what these laws are about. Creating a fence to allow humanity to flourish as God intended it to. That's why there's all these commands that seem very drastic to us. Break down the altars, smash the sacred stones, cut the Asherah poles. To leave even one of those things, it would be like leaving a few feral cats in Keena Point after they built the fence. And it might look good for a little bit, but those cats will multiply 
and soon it will be turned into a wasteland and destroy the beauty of that place. That is what all this is about. Just a few comments on specific commands. Verse 16, there's a prohibition about marrying foreign wives because they would lead the son's heart astray. Now, nowhere in the Bible is there any prohibition against marrying someone of a different, different ethnicity. This command is actually not at all about that. There's a whole book of the Bible about a foreign woman. The name comes from her, Ruth, and she is integral to Jesus' family line. This command is about marrying someone of a different faith. So if a foreigner were to come, like Ruth, and say, your God is my God, your people are my people, that's a good and beautiful thing, and that is not what this is getting at. This fence that God is constructing isn't about keeping certain types of people out, that you need to look a certain way or be of a certain ancestry to come in here. No, it is about keeping those who don't have that goal of living life in harmony with God out. Because if they don't have that goal, you cannot construct that beautiful community. And this applies just as much to us in, in some ways. If you marry somebody of a different faith, it will lead to all kinds of extra strain. It's why the Apostle Paul says that if you're a Christian, you need to marry another Christian. And we can think of it very logically. That to be a Christian means that you are united with Christ. You become one with Christ. But then to marry someone is to become one with that person. And when that person also loves Christ, it creates this wonderful harmony of growth and intimacy. But if you become one with someone who isn't one with God, now you're one with two people standing on opposite sides and you're going to constantly feel pulled in different directions and feel like you can't do either one of these things well. Now, at the end of verse 26, we've got a command to not cook a goat in its mother's milk. Right? Which, at first I just thought this command is about not being cruel, right? Like, that just seems kind of cruel to do that to an animal. It's okay to kill for food, but at least do it humanely. Uh, but many commentators note that this was probably a common cultural practice of many of the people living around the Israelites. And it was a superstitious practice that they believed if you kill the goat, and boil it in its mother's milk, it would increase the fertility of your livestock. And that now this kind of random-sounding command makes a lot of sense, right? You can't import the superstitions and spiritual practices of the other nations if you're building a community that's a picture of life in harmony with God. Or take note of the law in verse 21 about resting on the Sabbath, where it makes that note, even during the plowing and harvest seasons, you must rest. And some of you, you grew up in farming communities, and you know how there are not enough hours in the day during the harvest to get everything done. But God is building a community that looks different from the rest of the world, that has different culture, different rhythms of life, and a different perspective of what this life is about, so that when the rest of the nations are driving themselves to death through all of their work, God's people will show the world what it means to rest and to enjoy life. So God gives Moses all these commands, and then Moses heads back down the mountain after what would be a pretty intensive fast, 40 days and no water even. Now, a human can't live 40 days without water. And I think the point of this is that God's presence is the water of life. Right? He is behind everything that sustains you. 
He is the one that you need more than anything else. It's why you want God at the center of your community, because he is a well of life. And this brings us then to the third point, beauty. Moses gets down the mountain, and even though he hasn't eaten for so long, my guess is he, he probably feels good. He's just had this refreshing spiritual retreat with God. He's been away from all the people and all the complaints. Things are good. But as he starts getting closer to the people, the people start acting weird. Every step closer Moses takes, they take a step back. And he's like, what's going on here, guys? You know, I knew I forgot to pack deodorant, but is it really that bad? Moses didn't realize his face was shining. Some of that glory of God rubbed off on himself. Now, it didn't bother Moses. He didn't even notice it. He, he probably, my guess, felt pretty good about things. But it was too much for the people, and so they end up asking him to you know, put a face covering on, put a veil on. And Moses' humility here is striking because he has this wonderful thing. Like He has evidence of, look, I'm communing with God. I've got the beauty of God radiating off my face, but he doesn't boast about it. He doesn't say, well, you guys are just jealous. He puts on a veil in deference to his people so that he can actually be with them as well. We don't know how long he wore this veil, but it could have easily been that he wore this for the rest of his life, which was probably something, I think, 30 to 40 years longer after this. And we thought wearing a mask for a year or two was bad. Imagine a lifetime of wearing a veil. But then when he takes off, when he goes to speak with God, he can remove the veil. But then when he comes out, it's like stepping out of the spray tan booth, and now he's got a brand new orange glow all over him. And he puts the veil back on. This is a picture of what the presence of God does to you. You start to reflect his glory. Moses is a picture of what God's plan is for the rest of his people. Isaiah 60, 1-3. Arise, Jerusalem. Let your light shine for all to see. For the glory of the Lord rises to shine on you. Darkness as black as night covers all the nations of the earth, but the glory of the Lord rises and appears over you. And nations will come to your light. Mighty kings will come to see your radiance. And we see here that this then idea of being separate, this fence that God is creating around his community, it's not ultimately just to keep everybody else out. It's to allow an ecosystem of heaven to take root in this earth to flourish and then become a light to the world to show everybody else what God's vision is for humanity. And that light would then draw people from around the globe to come and see its glory. Now, the problem with this is that the people can't be obedient. They're going to keep messing up, as we'll see. They're going to do just about every single thing that is prohibited here. And so that ecosystem of God's community could never take root because they keep smuggling in feral cats for pets and it ruins everything. And soon their community looks just like all the other nations with their hate and murder and darkness, child sacrifice and other things. And sin cannot be cured then by creating more rules. The ecosystem of heaven can't take root in your heart by you just vowing to try harder next time. 
The beauty of God's obedience cannot be yours by beating yourself up for your failures and promising, well, I'll never do that again. And why is that? Because offense isn't enough when the problem of sin starts in our hearts. You can build the tallest, best fence, and sin will still infect that community because its root is in every single one of us. There is no people that we can point to and say, all the sin is in them, we're fine. And that is why the only solution to God's desire to live with his people is to bring in a new human. That is Jesus. And if we jump to Luke 2, verse 30 to 32, baby Jesus is brought to the temple to be dedicated by this old prophet, uh, to be dedicated at the temple, and this old prophet named Simeon sees Jesus and he proclaims, listen to his words, he is a light to reveal God to the nations. He is the glory of your people, Israel. That Jesus would be the person that God's people never could be because they kept messing up. A picture of what life looks like in harmony with God. And thus, Jesus would build that beautiful community out of his life. And he would do it by, from birth to death, living a life of perfect, perpetual obedience to God. And then, at the end of that, through his loving grace, pick up helpless sinners, wrap them in his arms, and say, my perfection is now yours. My righteousness is my gift to you. My words are a salve to heal your broken heart, and my life is an ointment to cure that sin that runs oh so deep. That is what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean to think you're better than everybody else. It doesn't mean to think you're the one that's fixed sin in your life and look down on everyone else around you. To be a Christian is to realize that sin runs so much deeper in my heart than I even know right now, but I've discovered a God who loves me even though he sees my sin more clearly than I do. And I need Jesus. And do you know what that means for us today as Christians? The Apostle Paul makes this really interesting application of this passage in 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 7. He says, The old way with laws etched in stone led to death, though it began with such a glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. For his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. So he's making this point that when, when Moses went into God's presence, it was like that glory started to recharge, but as soon as he left the tent or left, got down from Sinai, you know, he could watch the battery draining on that glow. And Paul continues, shouldn't though we expect far greater glory under the new way, meaning living on this side of Jesus, now that the Holy Spirit is giving us life, if the old way which brings condemnation was glorious, how much glorious is the new way which makes us right with God? In fact, the first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. So if the old way which has been replaced was glorious, how much more glorious is the new which remains forever? Now, there's a lot of words in there. So let me just break it down this way. Christians who are living on this side of the cross 
have access to a glory that is greater than what was shining off Moses' face, where he constantly had to go back into the tent to plug the charger in and recharge. But the cord wasn't long enough. Three-foot cord couldn't take it and still be charging outside the tent. But the Holy Spirit is like wireless glory charging that shines a greater glory. That the glory of Jesus is not a tent you have to keep walking into, but a presence that actually lives inside you and radiates out through your life. And you see, the rest of our Christian life then is that that perfection of Jesus, that glory of God that is within us, is you, though often stumbling, are learning to walk in harmony with that obedience. And when you hit the right note, it is like that glory of God breaks through your heart and shines out into the world to proclaim his beauty. That when you learn to walk in harmony with the Spirit, it creates a kaleidoscope of light that shines out into the world. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5 to his people. You are the light of the world. A city like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. It's a beautiful obedience. And because that glory, that obedience comes not from outside trying to do these things, but from inside, from the earned righteousness of Christ, it means that in one sense we don't need that same wall. We don't need to be afraid of being infected by the rest of the world. Just as Jesus touched sinners and what? He didn't become unclean, they became clean. Now through the power of Christ through us, we have the ability given by God to help make beautiful the rest of the world, through sharing with people the love of Christ. So that glory takes root in their heart as well. And so what this means for us is that our church, Jordan Valley Church, needs to be an ecosystem of heaven. That that is what this is. This is the place where sin's foothold has been lost that is brimming forth with new life as we reflect the beauty of the butterflies, the beauty of living in harmony with God, that we need to have a culture that stands in contrast to the rest of the world. We need to have an ethic that shows we worship something different from what everyone else is worshiping out there, whether it's money or power or prestige or sex or whatever it might be. We need to show a love that knows no bounds, that knows how to forgive and to love even when it's costly and even when it hurts. We need through, to, through our life to show people the unmatched beauty of our God who created all of this and to tell people he has a name and it's Jesus. And friends, we live in a beautiful valley. Let's also be a beautiful community so that the people in this valley, wherever they look, up to the left, to the east, to the right, or just to their neighbor, can see the beauty of Christ shining forth from every direction and want to know where that came from. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to be that beautiful community, Lord. And it is really, really hard because every day we are also tempted and we fail so much. Lord, we get sucked into the narratives of everybody else, of wanting more, whether it's more money, uh, more promotions, 
more experiences. But Lord, all that stuff is so hollow when it's unplugged from you. It has a glory just like Moses's that as soon as he walked away from you, it started to fade. And those things, Lord, fade so much faster when we take them away from you. Lord, help us to see that everything that is beautiful in this world is beautiful only because it is connected to you in one way or another. And Lord, help us also to have lives full of beauty because we are connected to you. And that through us, your beauty would shine into a world that is really looking for something beautiful because so much right now is dark and depressing and sad. Help us to be a different people, Lord, we pray. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.